Our sermon this morning is a little atypical in that we typically work through uh, passages of Scripture, you know, uh, an entire passage, work through books at a time, and kind of let the, the Bible kind of guide and inform um, what we're going to, to say and, and read and think about. This morning I wanted to think topically about the, the doctrine of baptism, what baptism is and what it is not, and, and you know, specifically um, you know, how baptism functions in the local church. And the reason why is because we have a baptism this morning. And so it's just an occasion to think through um, you know, specifically believer's baptism versus infant baptism and what those are and, uh, and how you know, Christians throughout church history have kind of landed on one of those two positions and, uh, and how it looks it, like in the life of our church. So we are going to read uh, a passage. Uh, we're going to read two passages, the ones that I think make the best case for either believer's baptism on the one hand or infant baptism on the other hand. So we're going to read both of those on the, on the front end, and we're going to refer to a number of, uh, of verses and passages throughout the sermon, uh, not the least of which is those, uh, is those two. So I'm going to read Romans 6, 1 through 11, and then I'm going to read Colossians 2, 6 through 16, and then we're going to... We're going to think together about, about baptism and about uh, our church. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, that we were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him into a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we could no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And in Colossians 2, we read, Therefore, just as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been given, and you have been filled with Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised through faith in the, wonder, in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you. 
for the for this opportunity, for the for the privilege that it is to sit uh, under your word and hear from your word and meditate on your word and specifically this morning to meditate on the the ordinance, the sacrament of of baptism. We pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding and clarity so that we can be uh, faithful and obedient to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. So, um, yeah, believer's baptism, infant baptism. Before we get into either one, yeah, that's kind of what I'd like to do is just take a few minutes and explain uh, either position and try to, like, make the the best case, the, uh, you know, try, try to represent each of them as, as charitably as possible and, and kind of help you make the, make the best case for why you would want to, you know, believe in either believer's baptism or infant baptism. Um, uh, but before I do it, I figured out we would start with what baptism is not because there are, um, some, some deviations both on the believer's baptism side and on the infant baptism side, um, from like, you know, kind of from healthy theology into what's called, uh, baptismal regeneration. And so baptismal regeneration, big word, but if you break it down, it's not, not too bad. Baptismal, uh, means having to do with baptism. And regeneration uh, means to be regenerated, to be born again. So it, it deals with salvation and being saved. So the, the doctrine of baptismal regeneration uh, is the teaching that uh, you need to be baptized physically in water in order to be saved. You can't be a Christian unless you're baptized. And further, if you are baptized, regardless of whether you trust Christ or not, regardless of whether you have saving faith or not, if you are baptized, then you are saved. Right? There's kind of kind of any number of like different ways that that could play out theologically. It can kind of get really in the weeds, but that's the gist of it, is that baptism is necessary for salvation, required for salvation, and or sufficient to save a person, uh, whether, they, whether they believe in Christ or not. And so, so uh, either position, believer's baptism or infant baptism, would, would not be that. It's, it's just helpful to kind of get that preliminarily uh, out to, to know that, you know, uh, believers, Baptists who believe the Bible don't believe that you have to be baptized to be saved. And infant Baptists who believe the Bible don't believe that uh, having their infant child baptized is inherently, intrinsically salvific or that, that it uh, saves them. That kind of goes against the, the you know, fundamental doctrine of justification by faith, that, that we're saved by the sufficiency of who Jesus is and what he has done for us by trusting in him, as opposed to some religious work or ritual that we that we would do. It's also tough to, you know, it's tough to, to argue for that, for baptismal regeneration biblically, because, you know, when Jesus is dying on the cross, uh, he looks, you know, you know, the, the, the thief on the cross next to Jesus looks at him and says, remember me when you come uh, into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And presumably that thief on the cross has never been baptized. Uh, he doesn't have time to get baptized, at the, you know, during the rest of his life. And yet, so, and yet he's going to be with Jesus in, in paradise. So it's tough sell biblically. It's kind of a, you know, defective and or dangerous theologically to believe that baptism is necessary or sufficient for a person's salvation. So we're not that. And, and there's a lot of denominations that believe that, right? Like um, the, 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 Roman, the official doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church uh, is that, is that uh, you know, Baptism is, uh, you know, sufficient to, to, I mean, that's kind of why, why a lot of denominations baptize children is because they're afraid that if they don't, if something bad happens to a, a young child, then they won't go to heaven. So they, they baptize little kids. There, there's believer, there's denominations of believers Baptists that teach baptismal regeneration. Uh, the Church of Christ is, is probably one of the larger ones that does, but also like, like Mormonism is not 
uh, kind of within the bounds of Orthodox Christianity because they deny the Trinity and the divinity of Christ, but they teach uh, baptismal regeneration as well. So it's fairly common, but it's also uh, problematic. So with that kind of preliminary you know, information out there, we're, we're, we're neither side, ba- believer's baptism, infant baptism, is teaching baptismal regeneration. Uh, it's worth kind of looking at both of them and kind of understanding the arguments for why a person would arrive at either one so that you guys can, can like think carefully and clearly about what, what you believe. Uh, we'll start with believer's baptism because it's simpler, it's easier. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty straightforward. Um, believers bapt- so and I'll, pro- I'll use a few different um, you know terms synonymously so it's just helpful to kind of get them all out on the table so uh, you, I might use the word sacrament or I might use the word ordinance just to use those you know um, you know interchangeably in terms of uh, the the streams of thought themselves believers baptism I might also refer to it as credo baptism because creed means belief baptism so so credo baptism is a fancy word for believers baptism and pedo baptism there's a fancy word for infant baptism because pedo uh, means, means child or, or infant. So, credo baptism, believer's baptism is pretty easy, pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll look, at, you know, look at the New Testament and say Jesus commands his people to be baptized. I think we have a, a verse, and we're just going to go straight through all of the, the verses, Jesse. Yeah, so um, there's a bunch of them here. But yeah, they, they look and they say Jesus commands his people to be baptized. Go therefore, into the, the, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. So they'd say, baptism is a clear command from Jesus. We can't not do it. Jesus tells us that we have to do it. We have to be obedient to him. But baptism, uh, from what we see elsewhere in the New Testament, is clearly not required as a as a prerequisite for salvation, right? So they'll look at Romans uh, 3, we're justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So we're justified, saved by grace through faith, no mention of baptism. Romans 5, we've been justified by faith, not by baptism, but by faith. Uh, and so we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So here's a bunch of verses that say that you're saved by faith in Christ. Here's, here's a bunch of verses that say that we should be baptized. So we kind of recognize baptism is not required for salvation, but it is a command of what you're supposed to do once you get saved, once you trust in Christ. It's kind of how you publicly profess to the world that you trust in Jesus. You do so by, by having this visible external sign of an internal reality that has taken place. So that's believers. Baptism, they'll point to a number of verses that seem to, uh, you know, that seem to kind of imply that that's kind of what was happening in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. It says, those who received his word... Right? Those who received the word and trusted in Jesus, those who received the word, were baptized. Not necessarily anyone else, but those who received the word. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 8, when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So the ones who believed the gospel were the ones who were baptized. Acts chapter 10. Right, there's all these Gentiles believing the gospel, getting saved. It's a big revival thing happening. And Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? They have trusted in Christ. They've received the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes when you trust in Jesus. And because of that, then we should baptize these people. And he commands them to be 
to be baptized. So credo-baptists kind of, they say, look at all of these uh, verses, these examples in Scripture where people who believe the gospel are saved. Um, you know, look at uh, how we understand justification to come by faith. They also look at the, the meaning of the word. I mean, the word baptism uh, literally means uh, to immerse, right? It's a, so, I mean, I, so like I guess a, a believer's baptist might say, well, regardless of whether it's believers or infants, unless you're submerging infants in water, like, like there, you can only get baptized if you can hold your breath, right? Long enough to go underwater and come back out. So therefore it's for people who, who are um, older. Um, but maybe the strongest argument, I think, for believers' baptism, in addition to, you know, all of these verses that seem to say it's believers who are getting baptized, um, in addition to the meaning of the word, I think the strongest argument comes from the passage we read up top from Romans chapter 6, which tends to link uh, baptism with uh, the, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Like, that's what it's meant to imply. That's what it's meant to symbolize. That's what it's meant to communicate. And therefore, the, uh, the subjects of baptism, the people who are going to get baptized, are those for whom that uh, relates and applies, right? Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So the believers Baptist would say, in what sense has an infant been baptized into the death of Christ? We, we were buried with him uh, by baptism into death, just so that we could be raised from the dead by the glory of the Father to whom we might walk, so that we might walk in newness of life. So they'd say that's very clear. Baptism is burial, resurrection, which is immersion, come back out. It's supposed to symbolize death, resurrection, forgiveness of sins, newness of life. And those things are true for people who trust in Christ, right? Uh, the, the, the whole point of the, of the symbol, according to the credo Baptist, is that, you know, when a Christian believes in Jesus, their old self dies, their sinful nature is put to death, right? They enter into the death of Jesus and identify with it, and they're raised in newness of life. They enter into the resurrection of Jesus and identify with it. Death, burial, resurrection, you're submerged into the water just like a corpse is buried in the earth. You're raised up out of the water just like Jesus got up out of the grave and rose from the dead in newness of, of life. So that's kind of the, that's the credo Baptist, the, the believer's baptism position and argument. Which is fairly straightforward. The, um, the, the infant baptism argument is a little more nuanced. It's a little more complicated and it kind of gets a little bit more into the weeds theologically. Um, but I'll try my best to, to, to represent it and to, to like have us, you know, understand what that argument says and what it, what it does. So, um, first of all, the, the infant baptism folks have their verses too. They have a whole, you know, here's our arsenal of Bible verses that we use to kind of justify our position as well. And so they're going to look at a bunch of places in Acts and elsewhere where it seems to imply that it's not just believers who are being baptized, but believers and others, believers and their, their households. Acts chapter 16, uh, we meet Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So Lydia is the one who trusts in Jesus. And Lydia was baptized, and her household was as well. So no mention of Lydia's household coming to faith in Christ, only Lydia, but Lydia and her household is baptized. 
uh, Acts chapter 16, there's the Philippian jailer, same thing. He was baptized, he and all of his family. So it's like a family event. It's like, you know, when a person becomes uh, a believer, they enter into the covenant. They have the sign and symbol that kind of represents them entering into the covenant, as does their entire family. God, in some sense, is working with the entire family. One person's salvation does not uh, save his entire family, but there is some sense in which God is saving that person individually so that their sins are forgiven. They go to heaven instead of hell, but God is also working uh, in that family. He's blessing the other members of the family through that person. They now are uh, in close proximity to a believer. They're going to hear the gospel. They're going to see that person's changed life. So there's some, there's some way in which God is working in the family, uh, not just that individual. Uh, Paul, um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, you know, Paul is saying, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. And so, you know, we, we uh, are to, we have no evidence that of anyone else in Stephanus' household believed per se, but his entire, his entire household was baptized by Paul. Now, of course, the believers Baptist folks will just say, well, we can just assume that in, like all of the other members of the household probably came to faith in Christ, and that's why they got baptized, which is a fair, it's kind of, it's, it's tough. You know, there's not really a, uh, like a, a definitive, you know, pin them to the mat, one, two, three, on either, on either side. Either way, we're kind of making some, some assumptions. We're kind of trying to, to figure out what, what's happening there. So, uh, Infant Baptist will say there's other verses that say that uh, not just believers are being baptized, but entire households, entire families are being baptized. Infant Baptists will also point to just the general uh, tone and heart of God for children throughout the Bible, right? They'll say, you know, um, well, yeah, so we'll, we'll just read from these, from Matthew 18 and 19 respectively, right? Um, you know, Jesus, when, when we see Jesus here on earth, he, he doesn't, uh, incline, like he's not pro-adult and anti-child. He's not like, uh, I don't want anything to do with these children until they're older and until they can exercise, you know, saving faith. And that's when I will, you know, be with them, right? Children are constantly coming to Jesus and Jesus is constantly welcoming them. Right? He put them in the midst of them. He says, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So an infant Baptist would say, you know, if Jesus is saying that adults should become like children in order to come to God, come to Christ, be received by God into his family, then why would we not let children, like, enjoy this sign that says that they are in some way kind of being welcomed into the family of God. Matthew 19, the children were brought to him that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. And he said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them for to them belongs the the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Old Testament as well, right? Psalm 127, children are a gift. They're a reward from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. So it's very clear, start to finish, beginning to end. God loves kids. God loves children. Jesus welcomed kids into their presence. He gave them access. And so why would we deny access to children where God has opened uh, access to them? So... And uh, 
infant Baptists would also have some responses to the idea that bap- the word baptism means immerse and, and nothing else, right? They would say, because, I mean, that's, that's, you can't, that's inarguable. Like, the, the Greek word baptizo does mean immerse. I mean, it literally means, like, to, to like, be submerged or, like, a ship when it's sinking uh, is kind of what, what, what the semantic range of baptism means. But they would argue that to just take that word at face value and therefore, uh, like, drive a nail into the fact that baptism must only ever be done by immersion is... Uh, maybe just a little bit simplistic, and it's kind of overlooking the broader semantic range that the theological, like, that the word baptism might take on when it's talking about the theological sacrament of baptism in the, in the church. So, you know, you read First Peter chapter 3, uh, it says that baptism corresponds to Noah's ark, but Noah's ark wasn't, like, submerged in the floodwaters like a submarine Noah's Ark was floating and what was happening with Noah's Ark was it was getting uh rained on it was getting poured on water was like getting getting being poured out on top of it and and Peter says Noah's Ark is kind of a symbol for it represents baptism in some way there's all kinds of verses all throughout the New Testament and Old Testament about uh being washed and sanctified and cleansed and this would kind of have uh, baptism is, is intended to represent and kind of illustrate that. First Corinthians 6, you, Christian, you were washed and you were sanctified. Ephesians 5, Jesus sanctifies his bride, cleanses her by the washing of water with the word. Hebrews 10, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the, the paedo-baptist, the infant, infant Baptist would say, if you just say baptize equals immerse, therefore we only ever baptize by immersion and we only ever baptize believers is just a little bit simplistic and it's kind of not acknowledging some of the, the nuance. They'd say, you know, when you look in the Old Testament, a lot of times how God, uh, you know, how, how the Holy Spirit of God is, is referred to as kind of being given to the people of God is done by pouring out. Right, the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit comes, God pours His Spirit from on high. Isaiah uh, chapter 32, verse 15. Isaiah chapter 44, I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. Ezekiel 39, I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my Spirit upon the house of Israel. Zechariah chapter 12, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. Baptism is done by pouring because it's a symbol of pouring. Jesus' blood was poured out so that we could be forgiven of our sins. God has poured out His Holy Spirit into our hearts and so we baptize by pouring. So, they both have their arguments with respect to, here's our verses that like say that baptism is just for believers or baptism is for believers and their entire household. They both kind of have their arguments around the definition of the word, right? Whether it means immerse or whether it means to, to pour out and to, to kind of, you know, to wash. And where uh, credo-baptists, like the, the, the logical kind of crux of their argument says um, baptism is inherently... Uh, representative of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and therefore the forgiveness of sin and the newness of life that we receive, there, there's a, a logical kind of crux to the infant Baptist argument as well. And this is what gets a little more into the weeds that I'm going to try to, you know, explain. It has everything to do with the covenants, right? With the old covenant 
and the new covenant and the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant and how you understand those two to relate together and how you understand the church to kind of uh, function in human history with respect to those covenants. That makes, makes sense. So here's the idea. Old covenant. Very simple. God's covenant that he made with his people at Sinai through Moses. Exodus chapter 19 to 24. You can read about the old covenant. God saves his people from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea. He brings them to the base of Mount Sinai. He brings Moses up onto Sinai. And then he spends time with Moses communicating his covenant. Here are the laws. Here are the rules. Here are the expectations. Here's the stipulations. I am the Lord your God. I want you to worship me. I want you to love your neighbor. I want you to follow these laws. If you do, here's all the blessings that you will enjoy from obedience. If you don't, here's all of the, the curses and the consequences for rebellion and disobedience. That's God's, old, that, that's God's covenant with his people known throughout the rest of the, the Old Testament and then the New Testament as the Old Covenant at Sinai. The New Covenant we read about in Jeremiah chapter 31. Um... Jeremiah is speaking, he says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. I'm going to make a new covenant. It's going to be different than the old covenant. For this covenant that I will make with the house of the Lord after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write the law on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's the new covenant. As we see in Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, when Jesus is uh, instituting the Lord's Supper, immediately before he uh, is crucified, he says, this is my body, which this is uh, Luke chapter 22. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus says, remember the new covenant that Jeremiah was talking about? That was referring to me. That was referring to my death on the cross, my resurrection, the salvation that is offered to you through faith in me. I am the, the minister, the priest of the new covenant. So you've got the old covenant at Sinai with Moses, the new covenant at the cross through Jesus, and the, the million-dollar question that's going to inform what you, you know, how you understand baptism is how do those two covenants relate together? And specifically, how much continuity... Is there between those two covenants? The Pado Baptist, the infant Baptist, will say, well, there's a lot of continuity. There's a whole lot of continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. It's almost all continuity and virtually no discontinuity. For the most part, they're like, God is still the same God. The people of God are still the people of God. People uh, did get and are still getting saved in the same way by God's grace. When, when, when God saves them and they trust in Him. One God, one people, one plan of salvation. Past, present, future. A lot of continuity. And as such, since there's a lot of continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant... We should expect that all the signs and symbols that surrounded the Old Covenant to give way to corresponding signs and symbols in the New Covenant with a lot of continuity from one to the other. The sign of entering the Old Covenant was circumcision. If a, if a Gentile kind of came to Christ and started, or came into the nation of Israel, started believing in God, 
then they would place their, you know, they would trust in God. They would get circumcised as a way of identifying with God and joining with the community of God's people. But circumcision wasn't just for new believers in the Old Covenant. It was also for entire families. Entire families would get circumcised. If, if the parents, you know, were saved, then their entire household would be circumcised. So, uh, it was, it was believers and it was their children, believers and their households. That, that's who got circumcised. And so the infant Baptist would say, since there is largely continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant, then we would expect that entire families receive the sign of the old covenant circumcision. Therefore, entire families would receive the sign of the new covenant, which is baptism. Yeah, and they're, they're going to, you know, it's not just all like kind of theological, you know, conjecture. They're going to point to Colossians 2, which is the other one that we read up top, to say this is where the New Testament actually verbally links those two together. It's kind of implying that they're the same thing, that they, that how one operated is how the other one should operate. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God that raised Jesus from the dead. So, you know, believers, Baptists, and infant Baptists are going to look at Colossians 2 and they're going to literally just use it to kind of become more convinced of their own positions, right? Believers, Baptists are going to say, see, it says baptism is representative of burial and resurrection, That's immersion language. That's believer language. That's people who have trusted in Christ and been saved language. Baptisms for believers. Infant Baptists are going to say, no, that sentence about baptism is literally made in the same breath as the previous sentence about circumcision. They are virtually the same. They're one and the same. They're different expressions of the same heart of God simply expressing themselves through either the old or the new covenant, respectively. Now, infant Baptists are also going, like, they're going to take this kind of idea that there is continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and therefore circumcision is for entire households and families, just like, I'm sorry, baptism is for households and families, just like circumcision was in the Old Covenant. They're going to take that, and they're going to say, this is how we make sense of something like 1 Corinthians 7, verses 13 to 14, which, admittedly, if you're a believer's Baptist, this is a strange, you're not, you know, it's a strange verse, right? If any woman... As a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be, would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So you're left kind of wondering, what, what does, how does um, a parent trusting in Christ make a child holy? How does a spouse trusting in Christ make their spouse holy? And, and the, the implication is that you know, if you understand there to be continuity between the covenants and you understand baptism to be something for an entire household, then there's a sense in which if dad gets saved, the whole entire family gets blessed because now they're going to all be dragged to church with them every week. They're going to be hearing the gospel, right? If mom gets saved, then it's better off for dad to have a Bible-believing, Jesus-trusting wife than, you know, than a, someone who's addicted to drugs or who is apathetic to, to spiritual things. And so when people get saved, there's like a family dynamic to it where the entire family is blessed, kind of like the entire family was, was kind of welcomed into God's covenant community in the old covenant through circumcision. 
So it doesn't, mean, it doesn't mean that family members are saved. It just means that family members are blessed by virtue of being in close proximity to people who now trust in the, the gospel. So infant Baptist position leans, uh, kind of relies heavily on continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And, and believer's baptism, frankly, just acknowledges more discontinuity than continuity. There, there's... You know, there's, there's, in, like, there, there are Christians who virtually see virtually no continuity between, you know, if, like, guys that are big into the rapture and, you know, uh, like, modern day Israel and the end times, that, that is, that sees little to no continuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. In fact, uh, a lot of folks that kind of, you know, that strongly emphasize those things basically see, uh, lit- God literally dealing with two different groups of people separately. Two people, like two people, separate agendas. There's there's the nation of Israel. God made physical promises to them, land and material blessing. And then there's the church. God made spiritual promises to them, like salvation and eternal life. And when Jesus came to the people of God, he was essentially offering himself as king to the nation of Israel. They rejected him. And so then Jesus said, all right, fine, then I'm like, I'm going to go find someone else. And he like left the people of God, the old covenant people of God of Israel and went and found a new people of God, the church. And that's who he's been dealing with for the last 2000 years. And then they'll say when the rapture happens, then God's going to stop dealing with the church, with the new covenant people of God and resume his dealings with the old covenant people of God. And he's going to gather them back to a plot of land in the Middle East. And, and there's, you know, so that's why it kind of, uh, kind of engenders this like strong emphasis on the nation of Israel in modern day and, and on the rapture and on the, the end times. So some guys say it's only continuity. That's why we baptize babies. Some guys say that it's only discontinuity. That's why, you know, we, we kind of have this strong emphasis on the end times and on the rapture. But if you, if you are a, a believer's Baptist, then you at least recognize some sense of discontinuity between the two covenants. And that, that is uh, this. And this is kind of the, like, this would be the, the believer's Baptist kind of response to the continuity. Would say, well, we recognize that there is a lot of continuity between the two covenants, right? One God, one people, one way of salvation. God saves his people. There's a lot of continuity, but there's at least one place where there's a break in that continuity, one place where there's discontinuity, and that is that the old covenant community, by virtue of entire families being welcomed into it, uh, it was a mixed community that was made up of believers and unbelievers, an entire household would be circumcised and welcomed into the community of God, then you've essentially got this uh, mixed entity where you've got believers, but also children of believers who may or may not ever become believers. And this is why you get verses like Romans chapter 2, where Paul says, Not everyone who's a Jew is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. A Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, not by the spirit, or by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul's saying the old covenant community, not everyone that was in it was actually a believer and was actually saved. This is what we see in Romans 9 as well. Not all who descended from Israel actually belong to Israel. Not all are true children of Abraham simply because they are his physical offspring. So the believers Baptist would say the old covenant community was a mixed entity of believers and some non-believers. But the new, they say this is why it's called new. This is why it's called the new covenant community is because it's newer. It's better. 
It's, it's different. It's, it's God's covenant community 2.0, right? Uh, it, it is, there, there's something different and better about the new covenant community than the old covenant community. And that is that the new covenant community is made up of believers. It, 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 the new covenant community is inherently regenerate, which is why Jeremiah, back in the verse that we read, he said, this one will be different, it'll be better, it won't be like the old covenant, and everyone will know me from the least to the greatest. All of the members of the new covenant community will be believers, none of them will be unbelievers. So, uh, if, the, if the new covenant community is made up entirely of uh, believers, unlike the old covenant then we should reserve the right of entry into it, baptism, to be exclusively for believers, unlike uh, it was in the, in the Old Covenant. So, that's kind of the, again, told you it was kind of in the weeds, but that's kind of the, the two positions of, of infant baptism and believer's baptism. Right? Uh, credo baptism, believer's baptism, says that there's discontinuity, there's something new about the New Covenant, it's made up of believers, that way we should only baptize be- that. Therefore, we should only baptize believers. Infant baptism says there's continuity. One God, one way of salvation. Therefore, the signs from the one should apply to the other. Circumcision in the old, baptism in the new. But the catch is, this actually applies, like this affects how churches operate today. Right? Your, your beliefs about baptism are going to affect how you, you know, who can become a member of a church. Who can, how the church uh, operates uh, to get, I mean, everyone, everyone believes that Christians need to be baptized, but there's some different disagreement on how that baptism actually happens. So the question is, what if someone who holds a different view of baptism comes to your church, wants to be a member of your church? Infant Baptists would say, no problem, because, uh, you know, you've, like, if you've been baptized as a believer, you've still been baptized, so feel free to come on in, be a part of our church. Believers Baptists would say, well, we don't think that you have to, we don't think that baptism is necessary for salvation, but we do think that you can't be a member of our church unless you've been baptized. And a person who was baptized as an infant would say, well, that's fine, I've been baptized. And then the believer's Baptist church would say, well, okay, tell us about the circumstances of your baptism. They say, I was baptized when I was an infant. And they're going to say, well, that's just, that's not baptism as we understand baptism, right? We understand baptism to be uh, immersion of a believer and not uh, the pouring of water onto uh, a, a baby. And so, uh, there are a lot of Baptist churches who refuse to admit Christians who are baptized as infants into membership. A lot of infant Baptists say, that's, that's a double standard, right? Like, we let you into our churches, but you won't let us into your churches. That's not, that's not, not cool. Which, to be honest, it's a good point. Like, that's, that's, that's a good point that comes from the, from the infant Baptist side. Um, and, and it matters all the more because, because of the importance of church membership, right? If church membership is this uh, fundamental part of the Christian life, wherein we come together, we covenant together, we, have, we profess faith to one another, we affirm one another's professions of faith, we covenant to live together, disciple one another, walk with God together, and encourage one another, then, then denying membership to another person is a really big deal. D- telling someone that you can't be a member in our church is the same as preemptive excommunication. Essentially what it is. It, you know, so, here, so God has kind of given us a prescription for what to do when there's egregious sin in our midst or what to do when there's unrepentant sin in our midst. Right? Adultery, abuse, theft, violence, 
insubordination, divisiveness, heresy. If someone is, is unrepentantly in sin, high hand, I will not repent, I don't want to, to obey God in this way, then God has given a prescription for how to deal with that person. It's, it's church discipline that culminates with excommunication. So, so the question is, is a different view about baptism so important that it warrants preemptive excommunication of a person? You can't be a member here because of how egregious or how uh, you know, problematic this particular thing is. It's not to say that Baptist churches are wrong if they don't let infant Baptists in. It's just to say that it's a big deal. It's, it's, not, it's, it's a really big deal that, that needs to be kind of taken seriously. Which brings us to, to JRCC. I'm going to kind of, um, you know, James, James River, full disclosure, doesn't have a strong, uh, a, a strong or definitive stance one way or the other. We're definitive against things that we think are uh, non-biblical, like baptismal regeneration, but we don't have a strong definitive stance on uh, infant baptism versus believer's baptism. So there's, there's elders at James River that, you know, lean one way, elders at James River that lean uh, the other way. And we've kind of decided together that it's not something we're going to, de- something we'll discuss, something we'll debate, something, but it's not something that we are going to uh, divide over. So we're not going to, re- we're not going to refuse to admit someone into membership uh, because their views are, on baptism are different than ours. Um, but we're also not going to judge and pressure uh, people to, to, Either baptize their children or not baptize their children. Jerry and I are not baptizing Baxter. We're not. We're not going to have him get baptized until he's you know older, if if and when he professes uh, faith. So, so James River kind of says there's close-handed issues that will keep someone from being being able to be a member. Divinity of Christ, Trinity, substitutionary atonement, justification by faith, and then there's open-handed issues like baptism. So. Someone comes to Christian, or someone becomes a Christian, comes to James River, wants to get baptized, we'll baptize them. If someone comes to James River, says they're already, they were already baptized uh, as a believer at a previous church, we'll welcome them in. They don't have to get baptized again here. They come to JRCC and say, I was baptized as a baby, they can come, they can be a member here. They don't have to get baptized again. If someone was baptized as a baby, comes to James River and says, actually, I... I've come to believe in believer's baptism. And so I'd like to be baptized as a believer. We would do it. There's some churches that say, no, we, we won't. Doing so would be tantamount to saying that your first baptism was invalid. We're not willing to say that, so we won't baptize you. We would, would do that. If parents have a child, they believe in infant baptism. Their convictions require them to have their child get baptized. We will baptize that child. But we would want to like talk and make sure, you know, if, parent, if, if parents came to James River and said, we want to have our child get baptized so that they go to heaven and not hell. If something terrible were to happen, then we would have to have a conversation with them because that would represent kind of a defective, problematic view of, of baptism. So, um, anyways, so we kind of are feet firmly planted in midair, believer's baptism, infant baptism. We recognize the merits of each. It's not something that we want to divide over, and it's something that we're kind of happy to, to flex and to kind of... Uh, see baptism in this particular way in this time and see baptism in this other particular way in this other time for the sake of being unified, for the sake of not excluding uh, members of the body of Christ. We're happy to make accommodations, provided that they're biblical, provided that people believe the gospel, because that's what we recognize to be the most important, the most fundamental uh, 
thing that holds us all together, that binds us together. It's not baptism, it's the gospel. It's that uh, Jesus, uh, you know, God saves sinners by his grace through the person and work of Christ. Jesus dies in our place, satisfies the wrath of God, secures the forgiveness that we need. Jesus is raised from the dead, victory over Satan's sin and death so that we can be unite, invited into new life with him. That's kind of what we're committed to more than anything else. We understand baptism to be a secondary issue to that. An important issue, to be sure, but, but a secondary issue nonetheless. And so we want to make room for valid expressions of both within our church so that we can be uh, faithful to the Word of God and bold where we are called to be, but also humble and kind and hospitable with one another and welcome one another into Christian fellowship where we're called, called to be. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for dying for our sins, for being buried in the ground, being raised up in victory. We thank you for inviting us into your death, forgiving our sins, for for inviting us into your resurrection and giving us new life. We thank you for pouring out your Holy Spirit on us and inviting us into the community of God's people where we can walk in relationship with others and persevere together. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be uh, faithful to your word and to be uh, loving and hospitable to one another. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.